Good evening. Welcome to the Just Sleep Podcast. I'm Tasha, your host. Every week, I will read you an old story to help you relax, put the stressful day behind you, and drift off to sleep. Occasionally, we will run ads in order to cover the costs of the production of the podcast. Rest assured, there will be no ads during or after the story. If you prefer an ad-free and intro-free show, you can join Just Sleep Premium. Visit justsleeppodcast.com slash support for more information. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection. Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Tonight, I will be reading two stories from Edith Nesbitt's Beautiful Stories from Shakespeare, Macbeth, and Measure for Measure. So lie down, close your eyes, and let me read you a story. Macbeth. When a person is asked to tell the story of Macbeth, he can tell two stories. One is of a man called Macbeth who came to the throne of Scotland by a crime in the year of our Lord, 1039, and reigned justly and well on the whole for 15 years or more. This story is part of Scottish history. The other story issues from a place called imagination. It is gloomy and wonderful, and you shall hear it. A year or two before Edward the Confessor began to rule England, a battle was won in Scotland against a Norwegian king 
by two generals named Macbeth and Banquo. After the battle, the generals walked together towards Forres and Elginshire, where Duncan, King of Scotland, was awaiting them. While they were crossing a lonely heath, they saw three bearded women, sisters, hand in hand, withered in appearance and wild in their attire. Speak, who are you? demanded Macbeth. Hail Macbeth, chieftain of Glams, said the first woman. Hail Macbeth, chieftain of Cawdor, said the second woman. Hail Macbeth, king that is to be, said the third woman. Then Banquo asked, What of me? And the third woman replied, Thou shalt be the father of kings. Tell me more, said Macbeth. By my father's death I am chieftain of Glams, but the chieftain of Cawdor lives, and the king lives, and his children live. Speak, I charge you. The women replied only by vanishing, as though suddenly mixed with the air. Banquo and Macbeth knew then that they had been addressed by witches, and were discussing their prophecies when two nobles approached. One of them thanked Macbeth in the king's name for his military services, and the other said, He bade me call you chieftain of Cawdor. Macbeth then learned that the man who had yesterday borne that title was to die for treason, and he could not help thinking, The third witch called me king that is to be. Banquo, he said, You see that the witches spoke truth concerning me. Do you not believe, therefore, that your child and grandchild will be kings? Banquo frowned. Duncan had two sons, Malcolm and Donalbane, and he deemed it disloyal to hope that his son, Fleance, should rule Scotland. He told Macbeth that the witches might have intended to tempt them both into villainy by the prophecies concerning the throne. Macbeth, however, thought the prophecy that he should be king too pleasant to keep to himself, and he mentioned it to his wife in a letter. Lady Macbeth was the granddaughter of a king of Scotland who had died in defending his crown against the king who preceded Duncan and by whose order her only brother was slain. To her, Duncan was a reminder of bitter wrongs. Her husband had royal blood in his veins, and when she read his letter she was determined that he should be king. When a messenger arrived to inform her that Duncan would pass a night in Macbeth's castle, she nerved herself for a very base action. She told Macbeth almost as soon as she saw him that Duncan must spend a sunless morrow. She meant that Duncan must die, and that the dead are blind. We will speak further, said Macbeth uneasily, and at night, with his memory full of Duncan's kind words, he would fain have spared his guest. Would you live a coward? demanded Lady Macbeth, who seems to have thought that morality and cowardice were the same. I dare do all that may become a man, replied Macbeth, who dare do more is none. Why did you write that letter to me? she inquired fiercely. And with bitter words she egged him on to murder, and with cunning words she showed him how to do it. After supper Duncan went to bed, and two grooms were placed on guard at his bedroom door. Lady Macbeth caused them to drink wine till they were stupefied. She then took their daggers and would have killed the king herself if his sleeping face had not looked like her father's, 
Macbeth came later and found the daggers lying by the grooms, and soon, with red hands, he appeared before his wife, saying, Methought I heard a voice cry, Sleep no more. Macbeth destroys the sleeping. Wash your hands, said she. Why did you not leave the daggers by the grooms? Take them back and smear the grooms with blood. I dare not, said Macbeth. His wife dared, and she returned to him with hands red as his own, but a heart less white, she proudly told him, for she scorned his fear. The murderers heard a knocking, and Macbeth wished it was a knocking which could wake the dead. It was the knocking of Macduff, the chieftain of Fife, who had been told by Duncan to visit him early. Macbeth went to him and showed him the door of the king's room. Macduff entered and came out again crying, Oh horror, horror, horror. Macbeth appeared as horror-stricken as Macduff, and pretending that he could not bear to see life in Duncan's murderers, he slew the two grooms with their own daggers before they could proclaim their innocence. These murders did not shriek out, and Macbeth was crowned at Scone. One of Duncan's sons went to Ireland, the other to England. Macbeth was king. But he was discontented. The prophecy concerning Banquo oppressed his mind. If Fleance were to rule, a son of Macbeth would not rule. Macbeth determined, therefore, to murder both Banquo and his son. He hired two ruffians who slew Banquo one night when he was on his way with Fleance to a banquet which Macbeth was giving to his nobles. Fleance escaped. Meanwhile, Macbeth and his queen received their guests very graciously, and he expressed a wish for them which has been uttered thousands of times since his day. Now, good digestion, weight on appetite, and health on both. We pray your majesty to sit with us, said Lennox, a Scotch noble. But ere Macbeth could reply, the ghost of Banquo entered the banqueting hall and sat in Macbeth's place. Not noticing the ghost, Macbeth observed that, if Banquo were present, he could say that he had collected under his roof the choicest chivalry of Scotland. Macduff, however, had curtly declined his invitation. The king was again pressed to take a seat, and Lennox, to whom Banquo's ghost was invisible, showed him the chair where it sat. But Macbeth, with his eyes of genius, saw the ghost. He saw it like a form of mist and blood, and he demanded passionately, which of you have done this? Still none saw the ghost but he, and to the ghost Macbeth said, Thou canst not say I did it. The ghost glided out, and Macbeth was impudent enough to raise a glass of wine to the general joy of the whole table and to our dear friend Banquo, whom we miss. The toast was drunk as the ghost of Banquo entered for the second time. Be gone, cried Macbeth. You are senseless, mindless. Hide in the earth, thou horrible shadow. Again none saw the ghost but he. What is it your majesty sees? asked one of the nobles. The queen dared not permit an answer to be given to this question. She hurriedly begged her guests to quit a sick man who was likely to grow worse if he was obliged to talk. Macbeth, however, was well enough next day to converse with the witches whose prophecies had so depraved him. He found them in a cavern on a thunderous day, 
They were revolving round a cauldron in which were boiling particles of many strange and horrible creatures, and they knew he was coming before he arrived. Answer me what I ask you, said the king. Would you rather hear it from us or our masters? asked the first witch. Call them, replied Macbeth. Thereupon the witches poured blood into the cauldron and grease into the flame that licked it, and a helmeted head appeared with the visor on so that Macbeth could see only its eyes. He was speaking to the head when the first witch said gravely, He knows thy thought. And a voice in the head said, Macbeth, beware Macduff, the chieftain of Fife. The head then descended into the cauldron till it disappeared. One word more, pleaded Macbeth. He will not be commanded, said the first witch. And then a crowned child ascended from the cauldron bearing a tree in his hand. The child said, Macbeth shall be unconquerable till the wood of Burnham climbs Dunsinane Hill. That will never be, said Macbeth, and he asked to be told if Banquo's descendants would ever rule Scotland. The cauldron sank into the earth, music was heard, and a procession of phantom kings filed past Macbeth. Behind them was Banquo's ghost. In each king Macbeth saw a likeness to Banquo, and he counted eight kings. Then he was suddenly left alone. His next proceeding was to send murderers to Macduff's castle. They did not find Macduff and asked Lady Macduff where he was. She gave a stinging answer and her questioner called Macduff a traitor. Thou liest, shouted Macduff's son, who was immediately stabbed and with his last breath entreated his mother to fly. The murderers did not leave the castle while one of its inmates remained alive. Macduff was in England listening with Malcolm to a doctor's tale of cures wrought by Edward the Confessor when his friend Ross came to tell him that his wife and children were no more. At first Ross dared not speak the truth and turn Macduff's bright sympathy with sufferers relieved by royal virtue into sorrow and hatred. But when Malcolm said that England was sending an army into Scotland against Macbeth, Ross blurted out his news and Macduff cried, all dead, did you see? All my pretty ones and their mother? Did you see all? His sorry hope was in revenge, but if he could have looked into Macbeth's castle on Dunsinane Hill, he would have seen at work a force more solemn than revenge. Retribution was working, for Lady Macbeth was mad. She walked in her sleep amidst ghastly dreams. She was wont to wash her hands for a quarter of an hour at a time, but after all her washing would still see a red spot of blood upon her skin. It was pitiful to hear her cry that all the perfumes of Arabia could not sweeten her little hand. Canst thou not minister to a mind diseased? inquired Macbeth of the doctor. But the doctor replied that his patient must minister to her own mind. This reply gave Macbeth a scorn of medicine. Throw physic to the dogs, he said, I'll none of it. One day he heard a sound of women crying. An officer approached him and said, The Queen, your Majesty, is dead. Out, brief candle, muttered Macbeth, meaning that life was like a candle at the mercy of a puff of air. He did not weep. He was too familiar with death. Presently, 
a messenger told him he saw Burnham Wood on the march. But Beth called him a liar and threatened to hang him if he had made a mistake. If you are right, you can hang me, he said. From the turret windows of Dunsinane Castle, Burnham Wood did indeed appear to be marching. Every soldier of the English army held aloft a bough which he had cut from a tree in that wood, and like human trees they climbed Dunsinane Hill. But Beth had still his courage. He went to battle to conquer or die, and the first thing he did was to kill the English general's son in single combat. But Beth then felt that no man could fight him and live. But when Macduff came to him, blazing for revenge, Macbeth said to him, Go back. I have spilt too much of your blood already. My voice is in my sword, replied Macduff. And he hacked at him and bade him yield. I will not yield, said Macbeth. And his last hour had struck. He fell. Macbeth's men were in retreat when Macduff came before Malcolm holding a king's head by the hair. Hail king, he said, and the new king looked at the old. So Malcolm reigned after Macbeth. But in years that came afterwards, the descendants of Banquo were kings. Measure for Measure More centuries ago than I care to say, the people of Vienna were governed too mildly. The reason was that the reigning Duke Vicentio was excessively good-natured and disliked to see offenders made unhappy. The consequence was that the number of ill-behaved persons in Vienna was enough to make the Duke shake his head in sorrow when his chief secretary showed him it at the end of a list. He decided, therefore, that wrongdoers must be punished. But popularity was dear to him. He knew that if he were suddenly strict after being lax, he would cause people to call him a tyrant. For this reason, he told his privy council that he must go to Poland on important business of state. I have chosen Angelo to rule in my absence, said he. Now this Angelo, although he appeared to be noble, was really a mean man. He had promised to marry a girl called Mariana, and now would have nothing to say to her because her dowry had been lost. So poor Mariana lived forlornly, waiting every day for the footstep of her stingy lover and loving him still. Having appointed Angelo his deputy, the Duke went to a friar called Thomas and asked him for a friar's dress and instruction in the art of giving religious counsel, for he did not intend to go to Poland, but to stay at home and see how Angelo governed. Angelo had not been a day in office when he condemned to death a young man named Claudio for an act of rash selfishness which nowadays would only be punished by severe reproof. Claudio had a strange friend called Lucio, and Lucio saw a chance of freedom for Claudio if Claudio's beautiful sister Isabella would plead with Angelo. Isabella was at that time living in a nunnery, Nobody had won her heart, and she thought she would like to become a sister or nun. Meanwhile, Claudio did not lack an advocate. An ancient lord, Escalus, was for leniency. Let us cut a little, but not kill, he said. This gentleman had a most noble father. Angelo was unmoved. If twelve men find me guilty, I ask no more mercy than is in the law. 
Angelo then ordered the provost to see that Claudio was executed at nine the next morning. After the issue of this order, Angelo was told that the sister of the condemned man desired to see him. Admit her, said Angelo. On entering with Lucio, the beautiful girl said, I am a woeful suitor to your honour. Well, said Angelo. She coloured at his chill monosyllable, and the ascending red increased the beauty of her face. I have a brother who is condemned to die, she continued. Condemn the fault, I pray you, and spare my brother. Every fault, said Angelo, is condemned before it is committed. A fault cannot suffer. Justice would be void if the committer of a fault went free. She would have left the court if Lucio had not whispered to her, You are too cold. You could not speak more tamely if you wanted a pin. So Isabella attacked Angelo again, and when he said, I will not pardon him, she was not discouraged, and when he said, He's sentenced, tis too late, she returned to the assault. But all her fighting was with reasons, and with reasons she could not prevail over the deputy. She told him that nothing becomes power like mercy. She told him that humanity receives and requires mercy from heaven, that it was good to have gigantic strength, and had to use it like a giant. She told him that lightning rives the oak and spares the myrtle. She bade him look for fault in his own breast, and if he find one, to refrain from making it an argument against her brother's life. Angelo found a fault in his breast at that moment. He loved Isabella's beauty. I was tempted to do for her beauty what he would not do for the love of man. He appeared to relent, for he said, Come to me tomorrow before noon. She had, at any rate, succeeded in prolonging her brother's life for a few hours. In her absence, Angelo's conscience rebuked him for trifling with his judicial duty. When Isabella called on him the second time, he said, Your brother cannot live. Isabella was painfully astonished, but all she said was, Even so, heaven keep your honour. But as she turned to go, Angelo felt that his duty and honour were slight in comparison with the loss of her. Give me your love, he said, and Claudia will be freed. Before I would marry you, he should die if he had twenty heads to lay upon the block, said Isabella, for she saw then that he was not the just man he pretended to be. So she went to her brother in prison to inform him that he must die. At first he was boastful and promised to hug the darkness of death. But when he clearly understood that his sister could buy his life by marrying Angelo, he felt his life more valuable than her happiness, and he exclaimed, Sweet sister, let me live. O faithless coward, O dishonest wretch, she cried. At this moment, the duke came forward in the habit of a friar to request some speech with Isabella. He called himself Friar Lodewick. The duke then told her that Angelo was affianced to Mariana, whose love story he related. He then asked her to consider this plan. Let Mariana, in the dress of Isabella, go closely veiled to Angelo and say in a voice resembling Isabella's that if Claudio were spared, she would marry him. Let her take the ring from Angelo's little finger that it might be afterwards proved that his visitor was Mariana. Isabella had, of course, a great respect for friars 
who were as nearly like nuns as men can be. She agreed, therefore, to the Duke's plan. They were to meet again at the moated grange, Mariana's house. In the street, the Duke saw Lucio, who, seeing a man dressed like a friar, called out, What news of the Duke, friar? I have none, said the Duke. Lucio then told the Duke some stories about Angelo. Then he told one about the Duke. The Duke contradicted him. Lucio was provoked and called the Duke a shallow, ignorant fool, though he pretended to love him. The Duke shall know you better if I live to report you, said the Duke grimly. Then he asked Escalus, whom he saw in the street, what he thought of his ducal master. Escalus, who imagined he was speaking to a friar, replied, The Duke is a very temperate gentleman who prefers to see another Mary to being Mary himself. The Duke then proceeded to call a Mariana. Isabella arrived immediately afterwards, and the Duke introduced the two girls to one another, both of whom thought he was a friar. They went into a chamber apart from him to discuss the saving of Claudio, and while they talked in low and earnest tones, the Duke looked out of the window and saw the broken sheds and flower beds black with moss, which betrayed Mariana's indifference to her country living. Some women would have beautified their garden, not she. She was for the town. She neglected the joys of the country. He was sure that Angelo would not make her unhappier. We are agreed, father, said Isabella, as she returned with Mariana. So Angelo was deceived by the girl whom he had dismissed from his love and put on her finger a ring he wore in which was set a milky stone which flashed in the light with secret colours. Hearing of her success, the Duke went next day to the prison, prepared to learn that an order had arrived for Claudio's release. It had not, however, but a letter was banded to the provost while he waited. His amazement was great when the provost read aloud these words. Whatsoever you may hear to the contrary, let Claudio be executed by four of the clock. Let me have his head sent me by five. But the Duke said to the provost, you must show the deputy another head, and he held out a letter and a signet. Here, he said, are the hand and the seal of the duke. He is to return, I tell you, and Angelo knows it not. Give Angelo another head. Provost thought, this friar speaks with power. I know the duke's signet, and I know his hand. He said at length, a prisoner died in prison this morning. A pirate of the age of Claudio, with a beard of his colour, I will show his head. The pirate's head was duly shown to Angelo, who was deceived by its resemblance to Claudio's. The Duke's return was so popular that the citizens removed the city gates from their hinges to assist his entry into Vienna. Angelo and Escalus duly presented themselves and were profusely praised for their conduct of affairs in the Duke's absence. It was therefore the more unpleasant for Angelo when Isabella, passionately angered by his treachery, knelt before the duke and cried for justice. When her story was told, the duke cried, to prison with her for a slanderer of our right hand. But stay, who persuaded you to come here? Friar Lodewick, said she. Who knows him? inquired the duke. I do, my lord, replied Lucio. I beat him because he spake against your grace. A friar called Peter here said, Friar Lodewick is a holy man. 
Isabella was removed by an officer, and Mariana came forward. She took off her veil and said to Angelo, This is the face you once swore was worth looking on. Bravely he faced her as she put out her hand and said, This is the hand which wears the ring you thought to give to another. I know the woman, said Angelo. Once there was talk of marriage between us, and I found her frivolous. Mariana here burst out that they were affianced by the strongest vows. Angelo replied by asking the Duke to insist on the production of Friar Lodewick. He shall appear, promised the Duke, and bade Escalus examine the missing witness thoroughly while he was elsewhere. Presently the Duke reappeared in the character of Friar Lodewick and accompanied by Isabella and the Provost. He was not so much examined as abused and threatened by Escalus. Lucio asked him to deny, if he dared, that he called the Duke a fool and a coward and had had his nose pulled for his impudence. To prison with him, shouted Escalus. But his hands were laid upon him, the Duke pulled off his friar's hood and was a Duke before them all. Now, he said to Angelo, if you have any impudence that can yet serve you, work it for all it's worth. Immediate sentence and death is all I beg, was the reply. Were you affianced to Mariana? asked the Duke. I was, said Angelo. Then marry her instantly, said his master. Marry them, he said to Friar Peter, and return with them here. Come hither, Isabel, said the Duke in tender tones. Your friar is now your prince, and grieves he was too late to save your brother. But well the roguish Duke knew he had saved him. Oh, pardon me, she cried that I employed my sovereign in my trouble. You are pardoned, he said. At that moment, Angelo and his wife re-entered. And now, Angelo, said the Duke gravely, we condemn thee to the block on which Claudio laid his head. O my most gracious lord, cried Mariana, mock me not. You shall buy a better husband, said the Duke. O my dear lord, said she, I crave no better man. Isabella nobly added her prayer to Mariana's, but the Duke feigned inflexibility. Provost, he said, how came it that Claudio was executed at an unusual hour? Afraid to confess the lie he had imposed upon Angelo, the Provost said, I had a private message. You are discharged from your office, said the Duke. The Provost then departed. Angelo said, I'm sorry to have caused such sorrow. I prefer death to mercy. Soon there was a motion in the crowd. The provost reappeared with Claudio. Like a big child, the provost said, I saved this man. He is like Claudio. The duke was amused and said to Isabella, I pardon him because he is like your brother. He is like my brother too. If you, dear Isabel, will be mine. She was his with a smile and the Duke forgave Angelo and promoted the provost. Lucio he condemned to marry a stout woman with a bitter tongue. Good night. <laughs>